morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Friday, May 20th, we're studying Acts chapter 10, verses 1 to 16. The Lord paves the way for his word to go to the Gentiles. He sends an angel to a centurion named Cornelius, and he gives a vision to the apostle Peter. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Jeff Hemmer. Pastor Hemmer serves as pastor at Bethany Lutheran Church in Fairview Heights, Illinois, and assistant to the president of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Pastor Hemmer, welcome back to Sharp Iron. It's great to be with you, Pastor Apple. As we get started this morning, Pastor Hemmer, let's talk a little context. We're beginning Acts chapter 10 today, a pretty important chapter within the book of Acts. What should we know as we prepare to dig into this text today? Well, it, it really serves as kind of a, a pivot point in the book where much of the book up until this point has been ministry to the Jews, um, those Jewish converts to Christianity, and ministry, especially in, in Jerusalem. Um, but now, as chapter 10 begins, it will be uh, an intentional moment of outreach beyond the Jews, now to the Gentiles, to the nations. Um, and then that that will prepare the way for what happens sort of in the second half of the book of Acts, and that's the movement of the mission of the church beyond Jerusalem out into the, the surrounding nations. And you'll have all of Paul's missionary journeys um, to all the various uh, countries and cities around the Mediterranean, up into Asia Minor, um, and and this sort of is a shift that moves the book in that direction. With the shift that takes place in Acts chapter 10, you mentioned how this very much sets the stage for what St. Paul will do in the second half of the book and that intentional outreach to Gentiles. I've heard this chapter taken as a whole, sometimes called the conversion of Peter. You know, we've had the conversion of Paul in the previous chapter, and, and Saul, of course, was persecuting the church, goes from non-Christian to Christian. Peter has a, well, I mean, some have called it the conversion of Peter, that his way of thinking needs to be changed. What, what do you think of that title? Is there, is there a conversion of Peter that we're going to see happen in this chapter? I don't, I don't think there is, um, and at least not, not in the same way that we just had the conversion of Paul. Um, so, Paul's conversion is is very dramatic, and it's kind of a once and done thing. But Peter Peter needs ongoing conversion throughout his life. He's you think of his interaction with Jesus uh, back in the Gospels, and he's at times very correct um, in his confession: "You are the Christ, the Son of the Living God." and then very incorrect when he would oppose Jesus' journey to the cross and needs to be rebuked, get behind me, Satan. So that's that's a kind of conversion. Um, Peter's denial of Jesus, first his adamant um, statement that, that 
he emphatically denied um, that that he would ever deny Jesus. And then you get sort of the same the same uh, adverbs that describe the way in which he he really deny he invokes a curse on himself in order to deny Jesus. Um, I'll be damned if I know the man, he says. And then and then he's restored again. So you have that kind of conversion there. You have this kind of conversion here in in chapter ten. But then you'll you'll have his interaction with Paul um, when Peter is insisting that the Gentiles must be circumcised in order to be made good Christians, and Paul says. Uh, I had to oppose Cephas to his face, um, and then and then he'll be converted again. He'll be restored back to Orthodox Christianity. So, I mean, there is a sense in which he's converted here, but it's not the same once and done kind of conversion that that we see in Saint Paul. Mm. Yeah, I, I think that's more of a work in oh. progress. Yes, I, I agree. And I appreciate the way you set this text in the context of what we've already learned about Peter in the Gospels and what else we will see from Peter going forth, particularly the incident you mentioned that Paul records for us in Galatians chapter two, to see that that work in progress, that ongoing need to be brought back to repentance at multiple places. It, and in that way, I mean, I, I guess in some respects, I can relate a little bit more to Peter than I can to to Paul in the way that his his Christian life is carried out. Saul is that such a dramatic experience and goes from persecutor to proclaimer. Boom, it's it's done. And you you don't get as much of his you get some of it, but you don't get as much of his struggles later. Whereas Peter, like you said, you get this back and forth. And and so I, I appreciate that about Peter. I, I have a, a much easier time relating to him than I do to St. Paul sometimes. Yeah, uh, that's very insightful. So with with that, then let's go ahead and, and take a look. We're gonna we're gonna meet two primary figures in our text today in Acts chapter ten. The first is a man by the name of Cornelius. We have not yet met him, so Saint Luke introduces to introduces us to him at the beginning of Acts chapter ten. We go to the text. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among these who attended him, and having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. All right, that takes us through verse 8 of the text. We'll pause there. As I was reflecting on this text, Pastor Hammer, Cornelius seemingly comes out of nowhere. We've been following Peter mostly. Saul interrupted briefly. We've gone back to Peter's story. And then, boom, here's a guy named Cornelius. Now, it's going to become pretty apparent very quickly as to why St. Luke introduces him. But he, he does just sort of like, okay, here's Cornelius. Here's what you need to know about him. Tell us a little bit about Cornelius, some of the, the important things we need to notice about who he is. Yeah. So, first, it's the, the scene shifts all the way away from Joppa to Caesarea, um, if you were if you were filming this as as a movie, it would be kind of an awkward shift. Um, and we're introduced to someone we've we've never encountered before. 
Cornelius by name. He's a centurion, which means he is uh, he's a soldier, and he commands one hundred soldiers beneath them. And this will this will evoke uh, in our minds the the Gentile centurion whom Jesus encountered. Is that in Matthew chapter ten? Um, and and he says of him. I've, I've not found such faith in all Israel, because after his, his interaction with him, the centurion says, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my, and my uh, son shall be healed. And Jesus says, among all Israel, I've not found faith like this. So Gentiles are always included, always included in the Lord's promise, in the offer of forgiveness, um, they're saved by faith, even all the way back through the Old Testament. But, but there comes to be a kind of distinction between those who are born into hoping for the Messiah and those who are not, those who are on the outside looking in. But So we know Cornelius, uh, a Gentile centurion, he is in the Italian cohort um, would have been uh, a legion, so 6,000 men in a legion. He commands 100 of them. But then in verse 2, we're told that he is a devout man who feared God, and not just Cornelius, but, but his whole household. And he gives alms to the people. He gives to the poor out of what he makes um, and prays continually to God. Now, that's all very telling, um, that that a Gentile would have such faith. And it really proves what we were saying just a moment ago, that, that the gospel has spread beyond Israel. Time and again, um, Gentiles are praised for the faith that they possess. They are included among the nations to whom Israel is called to be a light to the nations. And, and here you've got a man on the outside but is obviously uh, known not only by his faith, he's, he's called a devout man who feared God. Um, that's keeping the first commandment, fear, love, and trust in God above all things. He has no other gods. The one God whom he fears is the true triune God, and he and all of his household, and then, and then his faith plays out in his works. He gives generously, to those who are in need, and he prays continually. With the description that we get of Cornelius, that he is called this a devout man who fears God, yet he is a, a Gentile, should we understand then that he has attached himself to the God of Israel? I mean, not in the sense that he, he is a Gentile, yes, but he is what sometimes may be called a proselyte or, or the one who, a Gentile who believes that the God of Israel is the true God. That's what we're talking about, yes. right? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Now, so, what, I mean, what he's missing, well, go ahead, go ahead. What he's missing, yeah, what's he missing? is, is the, the understanding of the appearance of Yahweh in the flesh, in the person of Jesus. So, and he's just, I mean, he, he's like a, a tilled field ripe for the sowing of the word unto him, that the Messiah for whom you're hoping has come, um, and, and Peter will be the one called to bring that word to him. But so, yes, he's, he's a proselyte. He's been brought from the outside in, um, a convert to faith in, um, 
in the God of the Israelite people, um, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, though he doesn't know all the details yet, and, and we'll get a fuller revelation of that as the chapter plays out. So even, and I think one of the things that's striking about Cornelius is that uh, on the, in verse two, particularly, you know, he's, he's a good guy. He, you know, he's a devout man. He fears God, his whole household. He, he's led his household into this faith as well. And I think the, toward the end of the text, you see even one of his uh, soldiers is also involved in this, in this faith. So, I mean, he's a good guy. He does the right things that flows from his faith, but he still needs he still needs the preaching. He needs the the preacher to be sent to him. And I, I really appreciate that example of Cornelius that we're given here in Acts chapter 10 for that reason that, I mean, all the Lord is at work in his life already, but Cornelius still needs the preacher to come. He, he needs to hear that good news and particularly the good news about Jesus, that, that what he's hoped for has in fact been fulfilled. And so I'm, what I like about that is because it's a reminder for all of us, yeah, that we we need to hear that preaching. We constantly need to come back to hear that good news. Yeah, I mean, on the outside, great, I, I'm, I'm doing these good things, but I need that good news to be preached to me. That's what Cornelius needs here. And, and in the preaching of it to him, he'll be brought deeper into the faith. He'll have a fuller revelation of God's mercy towards him when when he hears of of the work that God has accomplished in in the sending of his son in in the sacrifice of Jesus in the place of sinners so he i mean were he to die before Peter's encounter with him we assume he'd be saved um he's right. trusting in the one true God though he doesn't yet know all the details um he's hoping for the coming messiah just like the, the people all throughout the Old Testament who are trusting in God for forgiveness, awaiting the day when, when the Messiah will come and deliver them out of their, their slavery and their bondage to sin, um, they are still saved by Jesus even before Jesus comes. And so Cornelius, even, even now, before he's, he's catechized, by Peter before he hears the the preacher whom God will send to him, he's still he's still saved. Um, he's still trusting in God for forgiveness, though he doesn't know the precise details, presumably about how that forgiveness is won and delivered. Well, that's a helpful point, Pastor Hammer. Take us into the the vision then that Cornelius receives. The Lord sends an angel. Uh, tell us what's going on here. Yeah, so he sees in a vision an angel of God come to him and call him by name, and his reaction is is the same as um, nearly every other human being's reaction upon seeing an, an angel, and that is he's terrified. He, he stares at him in terror and answers, what is it, Lord? Um, so he knows that, that this vision is not merely um, his own apparition, but he knows it's being given to him by the Lord. And the angel says, your, your prayers and your alms, the works that you do, have ascended as a memorial before God. And, and memorial is, uh, is a fun word. Um, we, we come across these kinds of remembering words all the time. And, and the remembering that happens, take, for instance, Jesus 
um, command about the Lord's Supper, do this in my remembrance or in memory of me. And so sometimes in, in denominations that don't believe Jesus gives his real body and blood, they'll call it a, a memorial meal as a way of saying, well, it reminds us of something else. Um, but the, the remembering in, in the Lord's Supper is really kind of a, a two-way street. God is being reminded of, of his mercy that he demonstrated in Jesus, and we are being reminded of the way in which God obtained forgiveness for us with the death of Jesus on the cross. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So it's really a, a two-way kind of remembering. And it's not that it's not that God has forgotten his mercy. And the same can be said here of, of Cornelius as well. It's not that, that God forgot Cornelius and all of a sudden um, his, his prayers and his alms, God noticed them again. And, oh, I, I remember Cornelius, this, this faithful, devout man. Um, but it is, it's more like old friends getting together uh, telling telling the stories of their lives previously with one another. They, they all know the stories, right? But, but they're telling them again because they like to be reminded of, of the past that they had together. Well, that's the kind of remembering here. Um, it's not that God has forgotten Cornelius. It's rather that he likes to put into his mind his saints, those who belong to him. And so that's what what puts Cornelius into God's mind are his prayers and and his alms giving. The the passages that come to my mind in the Old Testament when it comes to the remembrance of God, I think that's the way Moses writes both in Genesis when he speaks about the Lord remembered Noah while he was on the ark the you know the ark was floating on the flood covered earth and the Lord remembers Noah and I think the same thing is is said in the book of Exodus Moses writes that same way that the Lord remembers his people as they're in slavery in Egypt and as you said it's not that he forgot either Noah <clears throat> or his people but that he he they came to his mind he brought them to his mind and then he acted and I think something similar is probably happening here with Cornelius, that, that Cornelius is in the Lord's mind. And so now the Lord is going to act on behalf of Cornelius. And the way that he's going to act is by, by sending Peter to him. Exactly. So talk more about Pastor Hemmer with, with that in mind, with this, your prayers and your alms being this memorial before God. What, is, what, what kind of comfort does that bring the faithful when we think about the good works that we do in faith, the prayers, the alms that we give, those good works we do in faith, that those things are a memorial before God? What's the, the comfort for the, the faithful people of God in, in the way that the angel speaks to Cornelius there? Well, the comfort is that, that God notices even our imperfect works and and is pleased with them because works done in faith, um, faith in, in a God who forgives means that, that our sins are removed. That's, that's the effect that forgiveness has on us is that sins are removed. And with sin removed, all that remains is good. So if I, if I examine my own good works, um, it's easy to fall into 
the the line of of thinking, you know, was I really doing that for someone else's good or was I doing it so that they would like me or notice me or you know, appreciate am I am I doing it purely selflessly or do I have some kind of selfish motivation that's driving it? <clears throat> well, with sin removed, with selfishness removed, and that's given to Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, all that remains is, is a good work driven by pure motives. And that's the way God sees our works. He doesn't see our works the way we see them, the way we see you know, someone who is at the same time justified and sinful, grappling with some right motives and some false motives. Um, he sees one who is completely free of sin, a pure and perfect saint, um, who is, in, in whatever he does, doing good for his neighbor. So the, the comfort, the encouragement here is, is just to do good works and to not get uh, caught up in questioning our own motives, wondering whether, you know, am I, am I really giving alms um, in order to help the poor, or am I getting alms to, to be noticed and to be thanked? Um, am, I, am I praying in order to be heard by God, or am I praying in order to be noticed by men? With sin removed, all that remains are good works. Oh. The, the, that message from the angel that he begins reminds me of the way that the, and I imagine Cornelius's reaction like this, the way that the sheep react on the on the judgment in Matthew 25 where where Jesus says to those on his right you know you did all these things for me and they say well well when when did we do those things yeah and he says well, you know I that's kind of the the reaction that I imagine from Cornelius here and and the comfort that as we you know live out that life of faith and the things that we do that we're not even we don't always even realize that we've done them and and when we look upon them we all we see is our sin the Lord looks upon them and sees the faith that he's given and, and he says, well done, good, faithful servant. I've, I've mixed a couple of parables of Jesus, but you, you get the point. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I mean, I, just, that he commends their works at all um, because they, they weren't hoping in their works to make them good. They were simply doing them because they were good. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a wonderful thing. And, and as you said, a great encouragement to us as Christians to continue in those good works that the Lord gives us to do. Now, the, so that's how the angel opens. And then the, the message that he gives is pretty simple. Go send for, for Peter, or actually Simon Peter, and he's currently at the house of Simon a Tanner. Go, go get him. Now, maybe this is kind of striking, and we, we've touched on this a few times, that the Lord could have, the Lord could have just let the angel tell the gospel, he could have let the angel proclaim the gospel to Cornelius, but instead he says, go send for the preacher. And we talked a little bit about this with Philip and the Ethiopian, that the, the Ethiopian heard the good news from the preacher, Philip, not from an angel or from the spirit directly. But, but once again, here, you, you see how the Lord honors the ministry that he's given, that, that he, he sends the preacher to do the job. It's not a, a direct revelation from the angel when it comes to the gospel that's going to be preached. Yeah, that's, that's very good. I mean, it is, it is the way God has ordained things to work that his gospel we, will be proclaimed by the men whom he sends to do exactly that. And so, 
there's there's comfort for us that he sends preachers to us so that we may have the word that he intends for us to receive. And and angels, I mean, when when they appear, um, do bear a message from God, um, and they are sent in order to deliver that message. Um, but they're not they're not sort of bound to to preaching the gospel in the way that that preachers are. Um, they're they're given a particular message to proclaim. Um, which is what the word angel means, the one who has a message, sent with a message. Um, but, but preachers are bound to this, this eternal call um, until the day of Jesus' return. Um, those in the preaching office will be proclaiming the good news. And so the angel doesn't come proclaiming the gospel precisely, he does give some some encouragement to Cornelius, um, does tell him that that God has remembered him um, for the works that he does, and that is gospel. Um, but it's not it's not the precise gospel that that he needs to hear, and so he has Cornelius send in order to to get Peter to come here. And so you observe that that God doesn't, uh, the angel doesn't um, just preach the gospel, but he calls for the means by which the gospel will be proclaimed, and the means for the proclamation of the gospel is is the preacher. But he also doesn't go to Peter first. We get the first uh, picture that how Cornelius will will hear the gospel. Um, from Cornelius, that Cornelius will be the one to send for Peter. Now, we know in a minute um, that Peter will have his own interaction with the Lord um, that will prepare him to answer this call from Cornelius's men to go to Caesarea and to proclaim to Cornelius. Um, but it's it's noteworthy that, that because he's a man, a devout man, um, the angel puts it upon him to send and and fetch the preacher. And uh, Cornelius will do just that. He will listen to the Lord's word through the angel and send for Peter. We see that at the end of the section we've read, and we're going to pick up more of the text on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO, talking about Acts chapter 10 with Pastor Jeff Hemmer. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. 
to Sharper Iron. It is Friday, May 20th. We're studying Acts chapter 10, verses 1 to 16 with Pastor Jeff Hemmer. He serves at Bethany Lutheran Church in Fairview Heights, Illinois, and is also the assistant to the president of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Pastor Hemmer, prior to the break, we were looking at the vision given to Cornelius, and we left off by saying that Cornelius hears the vision and he does what the Lord gives him to do. Give us those last two verses, any particular details we need to see before we move into Peter's vision and the rest of the text. Well, just look at the immediacy with which Cornelius does as he's instructed. So the angel departed. He called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended them. And he sent them, he related what the angel had said to them. And then he sent them to Joppa. So Cornelius does as he's told. He he demonstrates uh, his faith by means of the obeying, doing what he's told. And, and among those whom he sends uh, includes one devout soldier. So it, it appears that Cornelius's faith, um, perhaps it's the way in which this, this soldier was converted, um, or maybe it's the other way around. Maybe, maybe it was the soldier's faith, but, but it is not limited to those who are ethnic Israelites um, who may be considered devout, trusting in the Lord, awaiting his Messiah, finding in him forgiveness of sins and, and hope for redemption and resurrection. There's a soldier as well who possesses the same faith as Cornelius. Uh, that's a helpful note just there to, to remember that what's about to happen here in Acts chapter 10 and then in the rest of the book, it's it's not just for this one man, Cornelius, but this will have wide ranging effects and the, the joy that the gospel goes to the Gentiles as well. It, it's not just for Cornelius. There's a whole group of people that the Lord is going to bless through his work here. So Cornelius has done what the Lord says. He sent these three men to Joppa to go get Peter. And the text continues now by returning our attention to Peter. We're starting in verse nine of the chapter. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. That's the end of our text for today. That was Acts 10, verses 9 to 16. So, Pastor Hemmer, the, the three men are getting to Joppa. They're approaching the city. So, again, we're, we're panning from Caesarea to Joppa in the movie now. And Peter goes up on the housetop the sixth hour to pray. Take us into to the scene and what's going to happen with Peter. Yeah, so the sixth hour would be noon, um, middle of the day. So it's lunchtime and he's praying, he's hungry. And while he's waiting for the food to be prepared, um, he, he falls into a trance um, and he has this vision or a dream. And what he sees are the heavens open and a great sheet being let down by its four corners upon the earth 
Um, and, and we ought to observe there that, you know, the earth is also depicted as having four corners, not that, you know, anyone who believes the word of God is some kind of uh, knuckle dragging intellectual inferior who thinks the world is, is flat and square. Um, but it has, it has four corners like North, South, East, West. Um, that is if the, the gospel is to spread to the four corners of the world, um, it is to spread across the whole world. So we have a, a sheet that sort of signifies the whole earth, four corners being let down, and it contains all kinds of animals, reptiles, birds of the air, um, and this would not have caused Peter's mouth to water more in hunger. So he's already hungry, um, but we know that, that reptiles and, and birds are included in the Levitical uh, commands uh, among those animals which are declared unclean. Therefore, uh, they may not be eaten. And, and the, animal, uh, the, uh, the sheet is just full of all these. And then there's a voice that says to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. So Peter, I mean, tell well before we get to the interaction between the Lord and Peter here. Talk more about that distinction between clean and unclean, as we we get it from the the book of Leviticus and in other places in the Old Testament. Why why does the Lord give that distinction, and why is it such a big deal to Peter that he objects to the Lord when the Lord tells him to to do this? Yeah. So your mother was not wrong when she said that cleanliness is next to godliness. Um, that clean versus unclean is intended to distinguish the Israelites from their neighbors. They don't have the same meal options when they go out to a restaurant that, that all their neighbors do. So there's nothing, nothing distinct between the animals which are clean or unclean, which may be eaten or not eaten. Um, it's not that there's something intrinsic in the animal itself, although you can read, you know, you can, you can get diet books. Um, I didn't actually Google it before we started, but I'm sure there's some kind of, you know, the, the Leviticus diet or something like right. that, <laughs> that, that aims to follow all the, all the clean, regulations about what may be eaten um, and avoid all those things which may not be eaten and and probably makes some some grandiose claim that if you if you follow this diet you'll be healthier wealthier wiser you'll live longer whatever it's not that some foods are healthy and some are not um, it it's rather that God gives them this this very, peculiar menu to distinguish them from the nations around them. And it's not just clean and unclean with, with regards to food. There's a whole host of things that would make someone clean or unclean, um, that would make him worthy or unworthy of entering into the presence of God. So at one level, um, it's, it's to make the people of God you might say peculiar, I would say weird, um, that, that they stand out 
from among their neighbors. And, and this, is, this is what God is doing all along. He, he carves out a peculiar people. He plants them in, in a particular place, a land that he gives to them. And, and all of that is because he will make them a light to the nations. So they have to be different in order for the nations to be drawn to their light. Um, they have to look different and act different in order that it would inspire this kind of curiosity from, from their neighbors, from the Gentiles, who want to know why, why Israel is different. And it's not just that uh, they don't eat rabbits or reptiles or shellfish. There's more to it. Why don't they eat these things? Because these things are prohibited by their God. And so then, then it becomes a conversation about clean versus unclean, unholy versus holy. And, and the reason God wants his people to be clean and clean is, is a, a progression towards holy. And holy is completely set apart, devoted to an entirely different purpose, carved out of the nations, righteous, um, distinct, and trusting in God perfectly and completely, um, that that holiness is a goal that's that's never achieved. Even though God says in Leviticus 19, you therefore must be holy as I, the Lord your God, am holy, nobody ever attains it. It's the same as, as Jesus says uh, in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, um, how good must you be unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of God. So how good must you be? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. You must be holy as the Lord your God is holy. So, clean versus unclean in distinction of foods um, is intended to, to carve out the people who trust in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but it doesn't get them holy. Um, that holiness, which God commands and expects, that holiness is only available in the, in the exchange that happens in the sacrificial system, which God also lays out all throughout the book of Leviticus. So either you can be clean and good and holy on your own, or you can receive a holiness from outside of yourself given to you by the one who is holy. You can receive that holiness as a gift. So all that is sort of the subtext here to these animals are unclean. And, and if a person is unclean, then, then he's not able in, in the Levitical laws, he's not able to enter into the, into the temple. He's not able to encounter God in the sacrificial system. So there's being clean is kind of a, a preparation for receiving his holiness. So that's why Peter says, I have by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. So, yeah, I mean, Peter's objection with that background makes sense. And I think it's it's striking to see Peter as the one who makes this objection, at least in, in my own mind, when I think about the Old Testament regulations 
and the ones who are sticklers for it in the New Testament, I, I tend to think of the the quote bad guys in in the New Testament, the Pharisees, those the religious leaders, the scribes, those are the ones that really care about this stuff. But but notice that Peter here, who's I mean, you know, I don't know if I can say this, your average Israelite at this point, he's very concerned about the clean and unclean too. This isn't this isn't just a, a thing about the Pharisees, but this is something that is a part of the Israelite identity at this point in, in history, that this is a really big deal. So the Lord, though, he's going to make this this shift for for his people. And he's probably, I mean, he's already started to make this in his own ministry. Luke told us at the beginning of Acts that he already recorded for us what Jesus began to do and teach. Here, Jesus is continuing that teaching for Peter. So what what is Jesus teaching Peter through this vision, this interaction that we see in Acts chapter 10? Well, so one one of the things that could have rendered a person unclean is is, is certain kinds of interactions with with the Gentiles. Um, so, having dinner in in the house of a Gentile, for instance, would re- would render one unclean. So, this distinction that in Peter's mind, some things are clean and some things are not. Um, Jesus is, is going to do away with that distinction that anything God calls clean is clean. Um, if God calls a thing clean, no longer call it common or profane. It is, it is holy. If he calls it holy, then it is holy. And so this, this will prepare Peter to receive the request from Cornelius's men to come to the house of a Gentile. So if, if the command comes from God to go visit Cornelius in his house, then it will not render Peter ceremonially unclean. Um, this, the holiness that God gives is not a matter of obeying the Levitical laws anymore, it's a matter of receiving the holiness won by Jesus. And so not only is this preparing Peter for being sent to Cornelius's house, it's also preparing Peter for the, the very terse interaction with Paul when, when Peter is still insisting, okay, we'll, we'll allow Gentiles in, but they have to, they have to be made like Jews. So Gentile men will have to be circumcised. Um, and, and Paul calls Peter a Judaizer, calls anyone who would force the Gentiles to submit to Jewish laws in order to be good Christians um, outside Orthodox Christianity, outside what God is doing in the person of Jesus. So that's, that's what Jesus is saying here to Peter. Don't call anything common that I have made clean. If I send you to the Gentiles, if I make you a preacher to the Gentiles, then it doesn't make you unclean to go into the house of a Gentile because what makes one clean is the gospel Peter is, is bringing to Cornelius. What makes one clean is the, is the forgiveness won by Jesus on the cross. What makes one holy is the interaction with God 
that that happens in his church. And so the Gentiles are being being brought in, have no need to submit to any of these things that made that made Israel a peculiar, particular people. Now what makes the people of God peculiar and particular is that they they trust in the death and resurrection of the second person of the Trinity, which is far more outlandish and and weird than than dietary restrictions um, or or travel restrictions or any of the other clean and unclean kinds of things believing that that God died on the cross is far more peculiar than being made a peculiar people hoping for the redemption that God would accomplish through his Messiah so this this vision that Peter receives then is is more than what he should and shouldn't eat. There's something much farther reaching than what you know Peter's hungry at the moment and what he can eat at the the meal that's being prepared. There's more going on than that. But at the same time, I, I think that there is still this text does, and you've I think you've already at least started towards it, if not answered it more fully. That there is something to this text about what what does this text have to say? about the way that we as Christians do or don't make use of, you know, parts of the Bible like Leviticus that deal with these ceremonially unclean and clean things. How, how does this text influence the way we read and apply those? Well, uh, in, in the same way that Jesus reads and applies them, that no, not no letter of the law passes away, that it is eternal. Um, and he comes not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So all the clean and unclean regulations, all the commandments, all, all the ways we, we sort of divide up the law, civil and ceremonial and moral, all of that is fulfilled in Jesus. The law is eternal, but when he does it, it's done. So none of it any longer has, has any, uh, any authority over those who are now in Christ. So there's no, there's no reason to go back to those things that are preparing the people of God for the Messiah and, and to try to find in them some prophet. The prophet is, is that they, they prepared people to receive the holiness that God delivers through the sacrifice of his son. Full and final gift of holiness is available in Jesus alone. Now, our, our text for today, which does con or finish in the middle of, of this chapter, there's plenty that happens. And what we're going to read to, or the next week is going to be just right on the heels of this. But we, we get to end today with the fact that this happens three times. You, you mentioned earlier about Peter's, you know, his life and the various things. The fact that it happens three times certain, certainly fits with Peter's own life and, and his threefold denial, his threefold restoration. And then any time that the Lord takes the time to repeat something, it's, it's probably worth paying attention. Talk, talk a little bit about the three times of this vision. Yeah, so three is, is definitely uh, <laughs> Peter's uh, number Peter, in, in Peter's interaction with the Lord. Um, it's the number of times that he will deny him. It's the number of times 
that Jesus will ask Peter, uh, Peter, do you love me? The number of times that Jesus will command him to feed his sheep upon every affirmative answer that Peter does, in fact, love him. Um, three is the number for God. Uh, so it, it will be a perfect, complete number. Um, three persons to the one true triune God. And so because this happens three times, Peter knows that this vision is from the Lord himself. In the same way, you know, Peter denied three times. Peter was restored three times. Peter was sent three times. Here, the, the sheet descends down to Peter, and the Lord says to him three times, don't call anything common that I have made clean. Then it clicks for Peter. It's not, it's not just you know, his, his rumbling stomach that's given him this, this vision on the rooftop in the middle of his prayer. It is a, a vision that's come from the Lord himself. Hmm. Right. And, and that will be confirmed as the, as the text continues on, as we see the men arrive there at Simon's house and Peter does welcome them. And th- all this is going to be confirmed. This again is a very significant event within the book of Acts that is told in multiple ways here in Acts 10. And then again, in, in Acts 11, Peter's going to give testimony to what, what has happened. So this is a, a significant event, and we're just getting started in this conversation. Pastor Hemmer, with about five five minutes left or so, uh, help us to, to summarize this text, the importance of, of this event and, and going forward in the book of Acts. What's the, the comfort for us as Christians as we see the beginnings of the story of Peter and Cornelius today? Well, the, the comfort is that we, uh, most of us, are not ethnic Israelites. We are included in, in God bringing in the Gentiles. Um, like Paul's description in, in the middle of Romans of lopping off unfaithful Israel and grafting in the Gentiles, we are very much like Cornelius. And we, we can take great comfort um, and what Peter will say, you'll probably do it two weeks from now, when you get to verse 34, and Peter opened his mouth and said, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. All who have faith in God with, without respect for whether they're Jew or Gentile with, without respect for whatever their, their socioeconomic status is, um, without respect to whether they're male or female. I mean, this will be what, what Paul says in Galatians 3. In terms of salvation, there is not Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. There's, there's only the one who has faith in Jesus. And faith in Jesus is available to everyone, and and those who have it, um, salvation is is the great. It levels the playing field altogether. There are no castes in the Lord's church. There are no uh, different uh, statuses within the Lord's church. And this happens in in the Sunday morning liturgy. Right? You have people who, in their Monday to Saturday lives probably have very little interaction with one another um, for an hour or two on a Sunday morning are brought together. 
and and they confess sins with the same word. They hear forgiveness with the same words. They sing together uh, a common liturgy, the common language of the hymns. They confess together um, the same creed. They're all the same. They're all those whom the Lord loves, gathers around his altar and his font and his pulpit so that we, just like Cornelius, can be hearers of the word of God, that we might possess his same faith. Also of note and and encouragement to us is that God is making good on his promise that, that the gospel will go forth from starting in Jerusalem and then Judea on out Um, in sort of concentric circles, on out to all four corners of the earth. And so we rejoice that that gospel has reached us, um, that God is no respecter of place anymore, and he, he delivers his means of grace to us wherever he encounters us. So we find we find the local congregation. Not we don't have to travel to Jerusalem in order to interact with God in His sacrificial system. We find the benefits of what Jesus did once for all on the cross delivered to us in the local congregation, um, because God, God being no respecter of persons, is a lover of all and desires that all would be saved. And so we we find great encouragement just from Cornelius, a guy who would have been an outsider if God were a respecter of persons, um, but he, com- he becomes very much an insider, and one one whom God remembers for his faith and his works, and one whom God is interested in sending a preacher to. Pastor Jeff Himmer is pastor at Bethany Lutheran Church in Fairview Heights, Illinois, and is also the assistant to the president of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, helping us today with Acts chapter 10, verses 1 to 16. Pastor Himmer, thanks for being our guest today. It's been great, Pastor Apple. Thanks for a good conversation. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Acts chapter 10, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the open mic feature on the app to send a message to us. We always love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again next week. Mm